Welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. I apologize for our tardiness. It's kind of been a day. (laughs) That's putting it so fucking lightly. Yeah. Um, I didn't even put in the description what we were going to be talking about today. That's how behind schedule we were. So I guess we'll give you a little bit of a run a uh, rundown of that right now. We're going to be talking about um, white supremacy and urban planning. We're going to talk about gerrymandering. Um, we're going to talk about um, Miko's blog that was posted today about um, the Indian Removal Act of 1830. And I'm actually going to put like a little context to the area that I grew up to give you kind of like a timeline uh, the best I can of what was done to the indigenous people there. Um, I already said, we're going to talk about gerrymandering. Uh, we're going to talk about briefly anyway, um, the Starbucks unionization drive. We will be having an article, um, for that, um, posted in the next couple days. Um, and what was the, oh yeah, the tornadoes. Oh my God. Probably the most relevant thing that's happened. And I guess I just want to start off by saying, um, that my thoughts go out to the people affected by, uh, the tornadoes on the 10th, I believe it was of December. Absolutely devastating supercell storm systems. Um, a single tornado that was probably an F5 tornado was on the ground for like, what was it? Two and a half hours and, or no, it might've been longer than that. I don't know. Uh, but one tornado plowed a path through four States over 200 miles. Um, also I, I would like to apologize in advance if our tones seem blunt. pissy. Pissy. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're both quite fucking livid right now and for very valid reasons, and we don't necessarily want to fucking dive into that because it's not related to this, but our apologies because you're going to be hearing the fucking anger in the tone of our voice tonight because we're fucking livid. So, you know, it's what it is. Um, for different reasons, I've got fucking crazy shit going on. You've had crazy shit going on, and today's been a really fucking bad day. So, Pretty much. Thank you for joining us, and... Sorry, you get to see our asshole sides tonight because we're fucking pissed. So thank you for your patience. We love you dearly. (laughs) And we appreciate you uh, being here, even though we're an hour late and fucking angry. (laughs) Yes, James. Yes, pissy anger. Pissy anger. Yep. Somebody literally has made me want to piss on their fucking face today and not in a fun way. 
don't even know what to say to that, to be honest. So. <laughs> oh my God. I, Honey, I really would, but I would have to rewind and tell you about the last two weeks of my life to really tell the whole fucking story. And Wade, you're my hero. <laughs> God love you, Wade. It's just, it's, it's too much. You don't want to hear about the last two weeks of my life. It sucked. I'm thankful to still be alive and breathing because that was almost not a thing. But it has been a roller coaster of shit ever since because I hired the wrong fucking asshole to fix my brake lines that blew and almost sent me off a cliff. Long story short. So um, I've been dealing with a total cunt for the last couple of weeks who has spoken to me incredibly disrespectfully, been downright fucking abusive. He has fucking threatened me and acted Taking like I'm the asshole for holding him fucking accountable for his fucking actions and his fucking foul mouth. I'm apparently the asshole. This motherfucker is a gaslighting, narcissistic fucking cunt. And um, I, I, I don't, I don't even know what to do with that. Right now, okay, y'all already know how I feel about the pigs and about having to even call pigs. But motherfucker, when you steal my tools, he called the pigs. Your bitch ass, your bitch ass have the right fucking tools to do my fucking brake lines and you needed to borrow my fucking tools and you fucking take off with them and then want to refuse to bring me my fucking tools and the fucking bill that I need to turn into the insurance to get the money refunded that I fucking paid out of pocket. Okay. Like this, I'm, I'm ready to explode. He's literally pushing me to the point that I'm going to have to fucking deal with the pigs to get my fucking property back. I'm pissed. I'm pissed. As you should be. As you should be, honestly. Um, so, Dean um, and I talked today. I was kind of hoping that he would be here tonight. Who knows? Maybe he'll pop in late. I, I did send him the link. But uh, we talked a little bit about stuff to talk today. And he wanted me to show a video and then we're kind of going to kind of dissect it, I guess. Talk about it is probably the better way to word it. Um, Ah, it's started playing before I even hit the screen share. And John, I, I can see something like that happening if if like they were identical or something, but this man very clearly knew that it was not his tools he picked up because he didn't have them. He's just got a false sense of fucking entitlement. And we've already gone rounds about him not having my consent to leave the job site with my tools because it wasn't the first time that he dipped out with my tools. And I was like, fuck you, bring my shit back. And then he kept needing to reborrow him again to fucking it's it's a dope ass fucking bender that um, I had gotten when I had to change my own fuel lines a few years ago on my old RV and still had it 
you know, because it was a dope ass fucking tool. And um, he needed that to bend the brake lines. And um, instead of giving it back to me after he adjusted the one up front yesterday, uh, before we let it out, he he didn't give it back. He just fucking took off with it. And he's tried to even buy the motherfucker off of me. And I was like, no. Sorry for your luck that you haven't found a tool this nice for this job. But you're going to have to fucking go to Napa and hope they still have him in stock and get your fucking out. Not my problem. So... Sorry, I'm I I digress. Let's watch this video. Sorry, just responding to the comments, <clears throat> and I don't want you guys to think I'm ignoring or anything. But yeah, I'm about to, ready to fucking explode. So if you see, I, my I head, get it. Boom, and fucking you know, brain splatter the fucking camera here. That's why. Agreed. Um. So, I guess um, a little bit of background. This uh, this video here is from Now This. It's entitled The Segregation Myth, Richard Rothstein Debunks in American Racial Segregation. Um, he's the author of The Color of Law, and he is debunking the myth of de facto segregation and explaining how modern-day segregation is enforced by U.S. law and policy etc etc um it's it is an eight minute video so uh please bear with us and of course i would like to say that we do not own this media this is the property of now this we are using it for educational purposes it's probably going to be the music that gets us flagged we've left untouched the biggest segregation of all that overwhelms everything else and hangs over our entire society, and that is that every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated. I've lived in many of them. Uh, there are clearly defined areas in every one that I've lived in that are all white or mostly white, or all African-American and mostly African-American. And all of us accept this as part of the natural environment. It's not we think it's a good thing. We know it's, we say it's too bad, but we think it's sort of natural, normal, something we accept. It's not that we've tried to do anything about it and have failed, we've never even tried. Boom. And so in order to rationalize to ourselves our failure to undo it, we've adopted the national myth. And that myth is pervasive. It's pervasive uh, across the political spectrum. Liberals and conservatives hold it, uh, blacks and whites hold it. The name of that myth is we have de facto segregation. Not something that was created by government like all the other segregations that we undid in the, uh, the 60s, but this is something that sort of just happened by accident. Now, obviously, he is, he is laying out the lie to debunk it, and I just wanted to point out that he is in no way condoning this or saying that this is the case. Um, that's all for now. It happened because people like to live with each other of the same race. Or it happened because private actors, whether they were real estate agents or bankers or uh, private citizens, uh, discriminated in how they sold or rented homes. Or uh, it happened because African-Americans happen to be poorer than whites on average, and therefore they can't afford to move to middle-class communities. De facto segregation is an other myth. 
There is no basis to it whatsoever. The racial segregation in every metropolitan area in this country was created by explicit, racially explicit government policy designed to create racial boundaries, designed to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another, with policies that are so powerful that they still determine uh, the racial landscape that we see in cities all over the country. Just like we have the myth of de facto segregation, we also think we know what public housing is. It's a place where poor people live, where uh, lots of mothers with children, single parents with children, uh, lots of young men without access to jobs in the formal economy, acting out, engaging in oppositional behavior that attracts attention to the police and a cycle of violence that we've seen in so many places. That's what we think of as public housing. But that's not how public housing began in this country. Public housing began in this country as a program for middle-class, working-class families. During the Depression, poor people were housing when public housing was first created. Housing shortage and public housing was created for people who could afford to pay the full rent in housing, and they did in public housing, but for whom there was no housing available. Everywhere, the Public Works Administration and the other federal agencies that succeeded it created segregated public housing, separate projects for African Americans and whites, in cities all across the country, frequently segregating neighborhoods that hadn't previously been segregated, that were integrated. During World War II, the uh, actions of the government intensified to create segregation. Uh, they intensified because uh, throughout the country, hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of defense production, of war production, to take jobs that hadn't existed uh, during the Depression. And the migration of workers into centers of defense production overwhelmed frequently the communities where they were working. The federal government had to build housing for these workers if one of the ships to be produced. For the African Americans, they built the housing on the temporary housing because the explicit uh, goal of the housing was that African Americans after World War II would leave and go back to the South. So they built temporary housing for the African Americans along the railroad tracks and near the shipyards. And they built more stable housing for the white migrants in the white residential areas. Very soon after that, uh, in the mid-1950s, a development occurred everywhere in the country which was systematic, similar, uh, and widespread. And that was that suddenly all the white projects began to develop large numbers of vacancies. All the black projects began to develop long waiting lists. And soon the situation became so untenable, so conspicuous, you couldn't have projects some of which the other which had long waiting lists, the federal government uh, and local housing agencies opened up all projects to African Americans. And then at about the same time, industry left the cities. Fewer and fewer jobs became available to the now increasingly and soon almost all African American population in the public housing. The population could no longer afford to pay the full cost of its rent, so the government had to begin subsidizing public housing. Maintenance declined in the projects. Prior to this, maintenance workers lived in the projects. They were paid good salaries and lived in the projects. Upkeep declined. The projects became vertical slums that we came to associate with public housing today. Another federal program that was perhaps even more powerful in creating racial segregation, and that was a program of the Federal Housing Administration designed to move white families out of urban areas into single-family homes in the suburbs. At a racially explicit basis, we created a white noose around every urban area with federally subsidized single-family home subdivisions. These were giant subdivisions in many cases. The most famous of them, I'm sure you've heard of it, is Levittown, east of New York City. 
17,000 homes in one place. What bank would be crazy enough to lend a developer the money to build 17,000 homes or 15,000 homes in one place for which he had no buyers? We were in a suburban country at that time. People thought the whole idea was lunacy. Who's going to want to live in a single-family home when they can live in the city instead? Any of these developers, the only way they could get the capital to build these giant subdivisions was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, submitting their plans for the development, uh, for approval of the construction materials they were going to use, the architectural design, out of the streets in the subdivision, an explicit commitment not to sell a home to an African-American, required by the Federal Housing Administration. The Federal Housing Administration even required, as a condition of these guarantees, developers like Levitt to place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African Americans or rental to African Americans. These deeds that still exist in these homes today, they're no longer enforced, no longer enforceable. But well, it, I kind of picked a weird time to interject here, but um, I guess I just wanted to point out that these types of practices were uh, done by Donald Trump's father, for the love of God. Um, probably Trump himself, but anyway, hello, Emily. Um, since I'm paused anyway, there's, uh, quite a few comments and I know a lot of you are, uh, are, and will be watching on video. Um, and I put this comment on the screen, but for those of you, um, that will be listening to this. I want to read this comment because John was on point. He said, yes, exactly. Racism causes the poverty in the black community uh, that causes the poor to have to move into, into dilapidated housing. Um, Vigo added, plus the application process for public housing and community help is almost preventative to find. Right. Uh, James replied to John saying, well, you can, but it's for the owner, not you. Oh, I, I skipped a comment. Sorry. John said, and when you pay rent, you cannot build wealth. And James replied to that saying, well, you can, but it's for the owner, not you. Oh, James's sense of humor. <laughs> right. Um, I have a great appreciation for dry, sarcastic shit. Thank you. <laughs> right. I need that in my life today. <laughs> Amen. And yeah, Amen. Josh, um, Josh, you're correct. Gerrymandering and industry leaving is what happened in Gary, Indiana. It's happened in so many places. Happened in Flint. Happened in Detroit. Happened. It's happened in almost every major <laughs> metropolitan like, yep. center. Yep. Yep. So fucking lovely. Um, I presume that's Natalie said building wealth and middle class, um, has home ownership as primary means to wealth. And I mean, our home ownership rates have been dropping for decades, <laughs> meaning that there is no generational right. wealth, even for middle-class white families. And, uh, yes, John. This is the insanity they force upon labor. And that's why we're seeing the strikes that we are, the, the labor uprisings that we are. Um, housing is already a huge issue, but it's not being talked about by the mainstream. But remember, we, we were talking about before the uh, eviction moratorium ended, that there was going to be 30 to 40 million 
new homeless people. And that has come to fruition in the mainstream media. It doesn't talk about nowhere to be found when homeless encampments are beaten up by the pigs. And we're talking about people have nothing or people who have nothing, have the nothing that they have taken from them by the pigs for sleeping in a park, for sleeping in a tent when that's their only fucking option. Yep. Um, James pointed out businesses own the rentals, not even the guy down the road anymore. Yes, exactly. Actually, I think that you and I talked about that in a, in a private message uh, yesterday. Um, but yeah, exactly. Uh, big businesses own almost all the fucking rentals now. And even if they are owned by an individual landlord, they're managed by a rental company. So... I mean, we're not talking about, you know, a landlord that's trying to fund their retirement off of a vacation home that they used to use. Uh, you know, we're not talking about somebody who like inherited a house and already had a house to live in and they're trying to like hook up their fellow fucking citizens, I guess. Uh, but we're talking about multi-billion dollar corporations getting more and more money while we get less and less. Have you gotten a 6.8% pay raise this year to match inflation since January 1st? I haven't. And yes, Natalie, it is getting quite bad with businesses buying up. Um, and we've talked about that, um, you know, so it's an ongoing issue i guess is what i'm trying to point out and we're kind of like getting at the getting at the reason why um anyway we'll go back to the last uh couple minutes of this video here but they're still there what was the consequence of this well those homes in those days uh in all of these suburbs they sold for ten thousand dollars or less eight thousand nine thousand dollars a piece in today's money, that's uh, less than $100,000, probably $90,000. African-Americans who were prohibited, prohibited, not they didn't want to, not because they didn't like living among whites, they were prohibited from moving into these suburbs, and they could easily afford to do so. Any working-class family can afford to buy a home for $90,000, roughly twice national median income. Those homes and developments like that now sell for $300,000, $500,000 and more. The white families over the next couple of generations uh, gained, you can do the arithmetic, uh, 200, 300, 400, half a million dollars in equity. They used that equity to send their children to college, to take care of medical emergencies, to take care of economic downturns, um, most importantly, to bequeath it to their children, who then had down payments for their own homes. African Americans, who accumulated none of that wealth as a result of this federal subsidy, had none of those uh, abilities. Today, Nationwide, African-American incomes are on average about 60% of white incomes. African-American wealth today, white wealth, that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century that has never been remedied. It's a constitutional violation. Of course, it determines the ongoing racial inequalities we have today.
I might want to unmute. <laughs> I have not um, read Color of Law by any means, um, so I don't know um, that much about the book, but I assume that the entire book dives into this. And I mean, I guess to be honest, we, well, actually Dean and I talked about how this could be like a three or four part series, especially with what we're going to tie in. Um, so we probably will be circling back to this topic in future streams. Um, I'm going back into my inbox to get the rest of the stuff that Dean sent me. Um, and, and the, okay, so the point is that this segregation myth that he just debunked, well, I guess the myth being debunked really lines up with the idea that all urban planning for several generations was white racial protectionism. <clears throat> and I, I think that's exactly what that shows. Um, and, and think about urban planning as a uh, tool of white supremacy. Um, and, and for the sake of this article, which is um, by the conversation, um, actually, I'll go ahead and post the link in the chat and also the private chat. Um, if you want to pull it up too, Trisha. Uh, but they're using Minneapolis as an example. This was written in July 2020. Um, and obviously, we know that Minneapolis is divided on racial lines. Um, that's part of the reason that the Black Lives Matter movement was so explosive there. Um, but I'm just going to read parts of this article, I guess, and... Uh, Trisha, if you want to like either switch off or like, you know, throw in commentary where you got it. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, uh, the legacy of structural racism in Minneapolis was laid bare to the world at the intersection of Chicago Avenue and East 38th Street, the location where George Floyd's neck was pinned to the ground by a police officer's knee. But it also imprinted in streets, parks, and neighborhoods across the city the result of urban planning that utilized segregation as a tool of white supremacy. Today, Minneapolis is seen to be most uh, one of the most liberal cities in the U.S., but if you scratch away at the progressive veneer of the U.S., uh, the U.S.'s most cyclable city, the city with the be best park system and sixth highest quality of life, you find what a Minneapolis historian describes about the city. And after this, actually, I'm going to, well, after this topic as a whole, we're going to talk about McCoe's recent blog um, and, and apply, you know, some of the effects of the Indian Removal Act on my own hometown and home county. Um, anyway, there's darker truths about our history and every fucking community here. I mean, we cannot forget that this country was founded on the genocide of Native Americans or indigenous peoples, whatever the preferred vernacular is. This, this country was founded on the blood, sweat, and tears of African slaves who were brought here against their will. And we cannot shy away from that history. Um, 
As co-founder of the University of Minnesota's Mapping Mapping Prejudice Project, Delagarde and her colleagues have been shedding new light on the role that racist barriers to home ownership have had on segregation in the city. Segregation in Minneapolis, like elsewhere in the U.S., is the result of historic practices such as the issuing of radicalized real uh, real estate covenants that kept non-white people from buying or occupying land. These covenants began appearing in U.S. cities from the early 1900s. Um, before their use in Minneapolis, the city was more or less integrated with a small but evenly distributed African-American population. But covenants changed the cityscape. Racist wording from the city's first racially restrictive covenant in 1910 stated bluntly that the premise shall not at any time be conveyed, mortgaged, or leased to any person of uh, to any persons of Chinese, Japanese, Moorish, Turkish, Negro, Mongolian, or African blood or descent. Wow. Wow. As a result. Um, I'm sorry, I'm listening, but I'm multitasking. I My mic was muted before you started reading the article. I didn't realize that. And I was trying to tell you, like, I'll throw in commentary, commentary where I can right now. Um, but I'm also over here dealing with a fucking thieving asshole mechanic. Once again, trying to coerce me into coming to his fucking house, which is a red flag. Hello, predator. Um, multiple times he has tried to coerce me into coming to his house. First, it was refusing to do the parking brake in his house. Then it was refusing to bleed the brakes unless I come to his house as if that's safe to even drive those uh, 15 miles from that uh, RV park I was at into town um, without bleeding the brakes first. Now it's him trying to coerce me into coming to property in the bill. Um, and I'm not having it. So I'm sorry I'm back and forth here, but I'm dealing with a fucking raging asshole. My apology. I'm just... <sighs> He's making my blood boil that much more. And I'm really, really trying not to lose my shit right now. So, my apologies that I had to interrupt you there, but that that's why I'm looking down is because I'm typing back telling this fucker off. Understandably I had so. enough of his fucking abusive shit. I don't know who the fuck he thinks he is, but with the wrong one. Um, while I'm back in this screen and not in the... <laughs> uh, John said, we love you, and Natalie said, breathe, with a peace sign. Um... So while I'm on this screen, I'm going to catch up on comments. John said, our history is how dead men define our modern lives. Take back our lives from the dead and live and offer life anew to others. <coughs> and uh, that's pretty well said. I said it in the comments um, during yesterday's episode, but really, man, you should... Uh, you should be a writer. In fact, if you want to write some articles and send them to us, we will publish them for you. Um, well, assuming that you're not writing far right shit or something. <laughs> anyway, uh, James said that's because the rich old white guys were in charge and will try to stay there until the end of time if able to. 
And that's why it's on each and every one of us, especially us fellow white guys, to change that. Um, yep, that's that's one other thing that is definitely fucking important to get across because for so long, things like systemic racism have been treated as if they are a burden for the black community and other people of color to bear on their fucking shoulders. Uh-uh. No. No, this is white people's job to call out other fucking white people to come correct on the racist tip. This is a white people problem. Plain and fucking simple. The responsibility is in the white community. You you better be snickering at the comments. I am, I am, I am. John said, I, I will. And far right, LOL, I am not insane. And I said, I know, John. And then I posted to all the platforms that was being funny. John is not far right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a fed? Oh, my God. I have to go there after all this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. Uh, I needed the lab. I needed the lab. I'm sorry. I know you're not a fed. I Yeah. <laughs> Not an oh man just a good laugh <laughs> so as a result oh of God. these uh covenants in these cities um african americans especially were pushed into a few small areas of the city such as the near north neighborhood leaving large parts of the city predominantly white some of the city's most desirable parks were ringed by white residential districts The result was an invisible racial cordon around some of the city's celebrated parks and commons. And that was done by design, not accident. As a scholar of urban planning, uh, the author knows that Minneapolis, far from being a represents the norm. Across the U.S., urban planning is still used by some as the spatial toolkit considering or consisting, sorry, of a set of policies and practices for maintaining white supremacy. But urban planners of color especially are pointing out ways to reimagine inclusive urban spaces by dismantling the legacy of racist planning, housing, and infrastructure policies, which I'm going to interject with the content of the article here to talk about, you know, walkable communities, um, you know, getting rid of the, uh, getting rid of the, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, lack of public transit, um, like literally everything about how our communities are currently planned is completely unsustainable and, um, getting white, uh, getting white supremacy out of urban planning is going to be a huge step moving forward. We need to get, um, people of color, you know, planning their own communities. Uh, we need to get, um, Well, I I don't even know that that's a real solution. We need to work towards integrated communities, which basically means that we need to start from the ground up, Um, which arguably we do anyway. We all drive a car, you know, an hour to a fucking job that we hate to make a bunch of money for a boss who doesn't give a shit about us. This is the reality for most Americans. Um, Anyway, I'm. I'm 
I'll shut up and get back to the article. Um, Racial segregation was not the byproduct of urban planning. It was in many cases its intention. It was, quote, not by accident, but by design, according to Adrian Weibgen, Weibgen, senior policy fellow at the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development. Uh, and he that was how he explained it in a 2019 daily or New York Daily News article. The effect was and still is devastating. Um, the Urban Institute, which is an independent think tank, uh, noted in a 2017 report that higher levels of racial segregation were linked to lower incomes for black residents, as well as worse educational outcomes for both white and black students. Um, other study study. Other studies have found that racial segregation leads to black Americans being excluded from high performing schools in Minnesota, which ranks as the fourth most segregated state. The gap between the performance of white and students of color is among the highest in the U S and then moving on to income and wealth gaps. uh, The median black family income in Minneapolis in 2018 was $36,000 compared to nearly $83,000 among white families. Holy fuck. That's insane. That's over double. I, I mean, I knew it was big, but like seeing it in dollar amount terms. Um, after Milwaukee, this is the biggest gap of the 100 largest metropolitan areas in the U.S., and uh, mirroring the city's income gap is a huge wealth gap. Well, no shit. Minneapolis now has the lowest rate of home ownership among black American households of any city. Residential segregation in Minneapolis and elsewhere is still stubbornly high, despite more than 50 years since the passing of the 1968 Fair Housing Act which prohibited discrimination in the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, among other factors. But while some residential segregation is now income-based, class-based, which is the underlying problem here anyway, but I'm not going to go into that whole rabbit hole. I'm just going to move on. Um, But while some residential segregation is now class-based, Racial segregation across the U.S. is more ingrained and pervasive than economic segregation. Um, Sorry, (laughs) Minneapolis is trying hard to reverse these racist policies. Uh, In 2018, it became the first large city to vote to end single-family zoning and allow upzoning the conversion of single-family lots into more affordable duplexes and triplexes. It's a start, but that's not enough. We need mass housing. And at this point, as bad as the situation, I'm talking about like mass housing like mass housing like China, mass housing like the USSR. I'm talking about it is time to end fucking homelessness. It is time to end housing inequity between... Um, white and people of color. It it is time to level the playing field. Enough is enough.
John said, my history is volunteerism, public service, union work, carpentry and structural maintenance, sociology, locksmithing, and 10 years military. I am a communalist and social worker. I am sure the State Department classifies me as a threat to capitalism, despite being on, uh, wait, I don't know where I got despite from. I am sure the State Department classifies me as a threat to capitalism, being on disability. Um, and John, I mean, honestly, knowing that your background, knowing now anyway, that your background is carpentry, structural maintenance, um, locksmithing, um, and volunteerism and public service, I encourage you to uh, maybe think about getting involved with uh, maybe a Panther movement that's trying to take on housing or some other sort of group that's trying to tackle housing, preferably not a 501c3 uh you know, I don't want you to give your labor away to some rich cat on top taking all the shit, but um, you can teach people those skills, man. I, I mean, just think about it. That matter, I mean, I, I don't even know what else to say. Those are solid skills to have on the left. And we're going to need people um, with multiple different skills to solve the problems that society faces, which I think right now is healthcare, housing, and food, and education. Education has to fit in somewhere. But those four things are what we need to base survival programs, mutual aid networks on housing, food, education, and healthcare. That's what we need to do. So anyway, my point is, John, I encourage you to get involved with a survival program or a mutual aid network. Um, I'm glad you do volunteer work because like I said, housing is a serious fucking problem in this country right now. <laughs> um, anyway, back to the article. Uh, this together with, quote, inclusionary zoning requiring that new apartment projects hold at least 10% of units for low to moderate income households, which that is not enough either. 10% of units for low to moderate income households. It's not inclusionary in the way they're making it sound. But anyway, that's part of the Minneapolis 2040 plan. There's that incremental shit again. Central to that vision is a goal to eliminate disparities in wealth, housing, and opportunity, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, country of origin, religion, or zip code within 20 years. George Floyd's death, Minneapolis City Council acted quickly in advancing plans to dismantle the city's police force. Um, dismantling the legacy of by design segregation will require the tools of urban planning being utilized to find solutions after decades of being part of the problem. And, and we have talked about before how Minneapolis is one of the few cities that has uh, defunded the police. And so far, it's been a success. We have to dismantle the system. And the police force is a pretty damn good place to start. Maya said blockbusting and redlining. John said freedom is working for free and fuck yes, dude, you get it. Um, 
And Natalie said 10 out of 100. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. 10 out of 100 for low to moderate income households. That's not inclusionary. We need mass fucking housing and we don't need it in 2040. We need it now. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty fucking sick of this goddamn in incremental shit. It's time to get it done. We have the technology. We have the manpower. We have the resources. It's time to do it. Put up or shut up. Anyway, um, that's the end of that article. Um, again, that was from the conversation. Did I put the link? Yes, I did put the link to that article in the chat. Um, I guess I'll save the other articles for next time, to be honest. I mean, we're already 45 minutes in and we're still on the first topic. So I think it's time to pull up um, either Vicky's article about Starbucks, which I, I have to go through and edit it. And I want to try to like add more to it because... I mean, it's an evolving situation. I'm sure that there's more today than there was yesterday, for example. Um, that being said, once the article is posted, we will continue to update it as we get more information. Um, Trisha, do you want to... Uh, well, what, what would you rather do first? Uh, yeah, we'll do the, we'll do the Starbucks thing. And you're right, Natalie, it is a worthwhile topic to be stuck on. And I'm not even necessarily saying that we're stuck on it. Um, but I want to be able to come back to this next week and continue talking about it rather than a one and done thing. This is, a, this is an ongoing problem. This is something that we need to continually talking about until it's actually addressed. Absolutely. Um, give me just a second and uh i've got um vicky's article about the starbucks issue pulled up here and i'll dive into that um she said starbucks unite unite against mistreatment and corporate greed unite against give some then take it back unite for fair treatment in the workplace Petitions to unionize were filed in August. During the pandemic, Starbucks closed some locations and shuffled around staff. This made for some longer, harder days. Uh, Starbucks also gave a pay increase for those that stayed working. After the pandemic, though, Starbucks took those pay raises away as soon as stores began to reopen. This prompted the petition that, as that is unfair. Um, organizers took the option to vote by individual locations in the Buffalo, New York area. Of course, this was questioned and fought by Starbucks executives and they lost. On October 28th, organizers were given the green light for store-by-store -store elections. If the vote is yes, it will require Starbucks Corporation to collectively bargain. Starbucks lost that fight to regionalize the votes, requiring at least 20 stores. Um, corporate also lost the petition to mail ballots. Ballots were effectively mailed um, November 10th and were due back last Wednesday, which clearly did not give them much time to get that stuff done and back, especially given how, you know, it's the holidays and mail always 
piles up at this time of year. You know? Yep. You know. Uh, one store voted down with a 12 no, 8 yes vote. This is currently being contested for uncounted votes. One other store, the Elmwood store, was victorious and became the first unionized Starbucks location. The third store has been declared a victory by organizers, however, has not yet been declared by vote counters. There is some contesting going on. Uh, Starbucks would close stores and move around individuals. Uh, the NLRB did declare they would be eligible to vote after two weeks. The certification process is set for next week by the NLRB regional director. In the meantime, this letter was posted by the Elmwood store by management, and it's disingenuous at best. Um, there is a Twitter link here for that. Rob, can you grab that and pop that in the comments, please, so that people can uh, go to that and see what Vicky's referring to here? Um what yes, I can, for. and I can also screen share it. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, what they hope for now with a good contract is things such as seniority pay, adequate staffing, credit card tips, basically holding Starbucks accountable. Uh, this will be determined store by store. They felt they had to force a seat at the table for partners. If the letter held true, the, the door is open. Why didn't they already have a seat? Three more New York stores, plus another in Arizona, have filed petitions to unionize. Um, not much additional information is available, but we will continue to update you guys on this. Um, and let's see if you can screen share that thread. We can take a look at that real quick um, for the point of reference there on that letter. Yeah, um, I, to I totally forgot. I was uh, making another push at sharing the groups. <laughs> Right on. Um, I am going to, should be logged into the For We Are Many Twitter. Yes, I am. So I just followed the Starbucks, work, Starbucks Workers United Twitter. Um, corporate partners at the first unionized Star Starbucks. We asked them to live up to one of the company's mission and values and collaborate with us instead of continuing to change our work environment by trying to pit partners against partners in our store and third-partying our union. Um, dear Elm Elmwood partners, we have the results of the vote and I want you to hear directly from me. We had eight, no ballots, 19 yes ballots and zero challenged ballots. This means the majority of partners at this store voted yes to having workers united represent you in collective bargaining. Our, uh, camp road location made the decision to vote against representation at this time, a decision, um, has not been made regarding our airport location. Okay, so the one that voted no doesn't even say how many votes. That's a red flag. Um, at this time, a decision... Oh, yeah, I said that. Uh, the airport location had nine no ballots, 15 yes ballots, and seven challenged ballots. Um, I want to thank everyone who turned out to vote. This was the most important thing we could ask you to do, and this was a strong turnout for our store with 75% participation. That's it? Damn. Wow. I'm saddened that in the end, the majority of you decided it was best for Workers United to represent you to myself, your district manager, and your store managers. <clears throat> Everything we love most about Starbucks is the direct relationship we have to each of you and our ability to work together to create a better tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, 
This outcome changes nothing in the immediate term. However, I do have one wish for all of us. We've heard a lot of partners say they are tired of the campaigning and some tension they're feeling at work. I get it, and I agree. My ask is that with the election over, we move away from the divisive us versus them feeling uh, that has changed our work environment. That's what a union's for, because it is us versus you, you capitalist fucks. Um, feeling, feeling that has changed our work environment. I already said that. My bad. Above all else, regardless of how we voted and what we wanted, we are all partners. As always, please reach out to me if you have any questions or simply want to talk. I'm here for you and uh, will plan to be in the store in the coming days to be present as you process the outcome of the election. I thought it was a threat. I guess it was just that one tweet. But that's that's laughable, right? Like, I mean, seriously, that's that's where they're at at this point is just being like, oh, well, you know, this changes nothing. We look, uh, this totally, okay, for, so that's another thing, right? They uh, say that it changes the relationship between them, which of course it does. That's the fucking point. But then they go on to say that nothing changes. Like what? You don't even know what you're talking about. And you're eating your own foot. Seems a lot more um, fucking. They like to taste their own fucking feet. John said, yes, them is a real concept. Wade Tate said, <laughs> Owen Wilson sound. I assume that means wow. Wow. And Nathan said, hola. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on to the next topic. I know I'm moving a little faster than normal tonight, but I mean... This next piece, um, I want to give some uh, context of, like, the place that I'm from. <clears throat> um, I apologize that I'm, again, not as prepared as usual, so I'm still working on um, pulling up the blog post. Why? Oh, I see. I'm not on the page. I was apparently like searching them. I don't know how I even did that. Uh, okay, so McCoe's blog that was posted today is titled The Ongoing Effects of the Indian Removal Act. Um, for those of you that don't know McCoe, uh, he is involved with Elahi Spirit Runners, which is an, ind an indigenous resistance group, an anti-colonial group. Um. Anti-racist, anti-homophobic, the whole fucking nine yards. So I also want to take this moment to say that um, as it stands right now, um, I believe it's going to be every week, but don't quote me on that. Wednesdays, Mako is going to be having his own show. Uh, the introductory episode, I guess, is what you would call it. Um, also has us on it, but... Um, that will be airing tomorrow, and he'll be talking about his previous blog post, 
which was about the poisoning of eight wolves in Alahi. So I'm not going to talk about that blog post in this stream because, well, he's... You'll find out about it tomorrow. Right, exactly. <laughs> Tune in tomorrow. So today we are going to be talking about um, the ongoing effects of the Indian Removal Act, which was passed in 1830. Um, agriculture was a factor leading to removal because Jackson was into cotton as well as slavery. In 1814, Jackson and the Treaty of Fort Jackson caused a land grab of 23 million acres from the creek. The Indian Removal Act displaced tribes westward into other tribes' territories, causing uh, conflicts with tribes like the Asage, I hope I'm saying that right, and the Dakota. False scarcity keeps indigenous people fighting each other as long as we fail to unite. Removal is when many immigration companies were formed. This makes it clear that the very concept of immigration in the so-called United States was created around Indian removal. Pretty easy to see, and that's that line right there, this makes it clear that the very concept of immigration is in the so-called United States was created around Indian removal. Um, yep. That's why I want to put the context from my own um, hometown and home county into this because it's everywhere. And I mean, I guarantee that almost none of you have ever heard of Tawas, Michigan or Iosco County, Michigan, but right. those are indigenous words and names and we're going to talk about it. Um, anyway. Yeah, a lot of Michigan is um, like that where counties, cities, roads, you name it, all have indigenous names because that was originally, you know, Chippewa and Potawatomi and some sock that, you know, that was their lands. Hi, Emily. <laughs> Hi, Mario. I don't know if he can even hear me. No, he can't. You got your headphones on. Tell Mario I said hi. He's such a cute boy. <laughs> oh, here comes Rev too. Oh, and Sarah's jumping in the mix over here. It's dog o'clock. Hi, Rev. Man, give him some love for me. I miss the big guy. <laughs> oh, Mario wants some love too. Mario's a jealous boy. Yeah. Distraction, you guys. But yes, it was dog o'clock. Um, <laughs> anyway, so back to Mako's um, blog here. For what it's worth, the Indian Removal Act was ruled unconstitutional and Davy Crockett, a congressman, spoke against it. It caused the Trail of Tears land grab in 1938, which was never seen ratified by a colonial Congress. Uh, natives were removed at Bayonet Point to prison camps, uh, many of which were in present-day present so-called Tennessee. Um, so since he's advancing chronologically quicker than the stuff that I wanted to talk about, this I want to bring this up just to point out that this is everywhere. I'm not trying to detract from or, you know, not talk about Mako's article. Like, I'm going to come back to it. But I wanted to talk about 
my home fucking town because I know about it. And what I was told in school does not match up at all with the reality. So I guess let's start by saying that I am not trying to say that the French did not take land from the natives. They obviously did. But they did also, you know, like purchase the land um, at Mackinac and purchase the land at Detroit. Um, or Detroit, as they pronounced it, but whatever, it's fucking Detroit. Um, the point, <laughs> the point of this is that most of the state was still primarily occupied. Most of the present day state was primarily occupied by indigenous people. Um, the early 1800s, there was almost no white people in the area that would become Iasco County. Uh, it was primarily Chippewa. Um, and ultimately, it was the lumber boom in about the 1830s. Gee, I wonder where that comes from. Um, where white people really started taking over the area in that regard. That being said, the French had settlements at the uh, Osable River. Gee, I wonder where that name came from. And they had a settlement at Agres, um, which I forget what that what either of those translate to. But the point is, is that the area was still primarily indigenous. The lumber boom happened in the 1830s, directly following the passage of the Indian Removal Act. And, um, you know, like the history that we're taught in school basically is that, um, I mean, they basically try to imply anyway that indigenous people had primarily moved out of the area before the white man came there. But yet the facts don't show that because white people primarily came there in the 1830s and later. And uh, at the start of the 1800s, it was almost entirely indigenous in the entire county. In the 2000 census, there was a 0.66% native population. 0.66%. I forget the name of the language that the Chippewa tribe spoke, um, but Iosco, the name of the county, is an indigenous word that means water of light. Um, The town itself, Awa, was named after Chief Ottawas, who was a Chippewa um, chief. And um, so just to give you a little timeline here the indian removal act was passed by the colonial government in fucking 1830 and then the lumber boom in northeast lower michigan started in the 1830s um and then the michigan became a state in 1837 and the county was officially incorporated in 1840 um, these names, these these indigenous names um, that are that are given to places, that was done by a man named Schoolcraft, um, who was supposedly an ambassador to the natives from the colonial government at the time. In other words, he's the reason for this. Oh, but we're honoring them. No. No, we're not. We're appropriating their culture. We're covering up a genocide. And calling it honoring the people that used to live here. Without even acknowledging that it's stolen land. Like I said, they always tend to imply that um, there wasn't a big indigenous population there. And that's just 
completely not true. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really all I have on that. Um, I'm going to get back to McCoe's article now, but the point is, uh, as, as Vigo's pointing out, Texas has lots of them too. Wichita, Comanche, Llano, uh, Wax, the hatch. Um, and exactly James. Okay. So how does the Indian removal act not sound racist and terrible just by hearing it? Well, it is, and it was, and it still is today. And that's why I wanted to interject here to talk about the history point because the blog itself is about the ongoing effects of the Indian Removal Act. Um, and then Nathan, I, I don't know how I haven't even brought this up, um, but they paid bounty hunters for scalps, which is absolute, absolutely is wild, uh, Nathan, <laughs> because 1950s Hollywood likes to teach us that Indians scalped people, and in reality, it was fucking Uncle Sam. So thank you for pointing that out. That is a very important point. Uh, Maya said uh, 26 states were named by natives. I mean, and I believe that. I, I know that Michigan itself is a native word. I forget exactly what it means or what language it's from. Um, I can look that up. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not surprised by that. But it's an appropriation of color. Whoa, culture. <laughs> Sorry, it's an appropriation of culture. Obviously, I'm still white. It's not an appropriation of color. Um, no, anyway, it's an appropriation. And it's blatantly covering up a genocide. Um, but yeah, I uh, encourage all of you to look into the histories of your own areas, and I'm sure you're going to find similar stories. It's not just Michigan. I'm going to have to look a little deeper to find out which tribe, but the name Michigan comes from the native word Michigama, meaning great or large lake. Gee, I wonder where they got the idea for that. Right. <laughs> Completely surrounded by lakes. And full of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I and I mean, that, that being said, okay, so like, I guess just to point out how pristine of land Michigan was for the indigenous people, we're talking about old growth forests that have been gone for 200 years almost now. Um, right. we're, we're talking about more rivers than I could ever count. We're talking about 11,000 inland lakes and Minnesota brags about 10,000 inland lakes. Um, and that's on top of the fucking freshwater seas. Hello. A right. quarter of the world's freshwater supply is in the great lakes basin. And we sell it to Nestle for pennies a gallon. We I just is found being facetious. There. It's a uh, Chippewa. Word. Yeah, Maya actually literally just said that. Um, oh, did she? Nathan, yeah, <laughs> oh. yeah. Like, literally as you were saying it, I saw it. Um, Thank you, Maya. <laughs> Nathan pointed out the Navajo and Hopi tribes, among others, were decimated out here in New Mexico. And I knew the Navajo were that far east, but I guess I didn't realize the Hopi were, because the Hopi 
also had land around the Grand Canyon. Actually, I think it's the Hopi that still have part of the Grand Canyon. The part that's not a national park is fucking reservation. And it's Navajo land on the other side of the canyon. Um, I mean, honestly, for as much as there's nothing there and it's very limited in resources, the the landscapes on the Navajo reservation are great. And... Um, it's totally unimproved fucking roads through the res, which I mean is, is kind of cool because, well, you know, it's less environmentally destructive than petroleum based roads, but, um, actually Trisha, when you come out here at some point, you've got to see the little Colorado gorge calling it little Co- calling it little anything is funny. But, I mean, it is little compared to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> well, I mean, any crack in the dirt would be little compared to the Grand Canyon. But, yeah, I'm down to see them both. <coughs> Sorry. <sighs> yeah. Um, Sorry, back to the blog. Um. So the Indian Removal Act was ruled unconstitutional and Davy Crockett, who was a congressman, I'm sure you all know the name, the folklore, I'm not diving into that, spoke again. It caused the Trail of Tears land grab in 1938, which was never even ratified by the Colonial Congress. Natives were removed at Bayonet Point to prison camps, many of which were in present so-called Tennessee. Um, By the way, I know that I already read this, but it's important, so I'm reading it again. Um, white settlers looted Cherokee homes and towns. Over 8,000 people died. It also caused the trail of death and the forced removal of Potawatomi and other tribes from the Midwest in 1938. And I'm willing to bet that that's probably where a big number of the Chippewa people from my home area went to. Um, Chief Menominee, how funny that there's a community named after him. Um, Chief Menominee refused to leave and troops rounded up over 800. Uh, Chief Menominee had a rope put around his neck and was bound. He was never seen again. Soldiers set fire to Potawatomi homes. Christianity. And, and okay. So I just want to, Mako is Potawatomi. So is Trisha and I's, uh, friend, um, who is from Michigan. And he still lives on his ancestral land. Um, so, like, we're talking the same state that I was just talking about. And that's also why I wanted to point it out. I mean, that's two tribes that I know of in my home state. And I know that there was more than that. Yeah, there um, was Sock as well, which LB's also a quarter Sock. Um, there was quite a few tribes. I'd have to look it up now. There was... Um, some maps that I had found last week of pre-colonial Michigan and where the tribes were. And there were so many, there was like 12, 13 tribes and most of them got wiped out or pushed out. Wow. Yeah. And I tried to Google um, chief Ottawa's because according to the local lore, he was a, Chippewa chief. Um, but 
I'm the only things that I'm finding is about War Chief of the Ottawas, which that being said, if the Ottawa tribe, which is part of the three fires, right? Uh, the three fires council, which was Potawatomi, um, Ottawa and Ojibwa, which Ojibwa, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe the Ojibwa peoples included the Chippewa band. Um, but I think that it was named after the war chief of the Ottawas, which was chief Pontiac who had a fucking car company named after him. If that's not a slap in the face to the culture, I don't even know what is. Uh, but the point is, the Three Fires Council, so we know that at the very least, at least the Ojibwa, the Ottawas, and the Potawatomi were forced out of the state of Michigan. And again, we're, we're talking about... Um, I just had a total brain fart. I'm sorry. But anyway, the point is, is I'm pretty sure that they were probably talking about Chief Pontiac. He was the war chief of the Three Fires Council. And he was the war chief of the Ottawas. That was his title. So I'm thinking that that's probably a more accurate story of where um, the name of my town came from. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe... You know, the record of Chief Ottawas is just buried. That's possible, too. Um, Nathan said, it's cool to see history in front of you, but it's also due to a seriously horrible reason. We have ensured that nearly any business or commerce is nearly impossible by ensuring that their benefits would be stripped by going over as little as a thousand per month or have more than one bank account on some reservations. And he apologized for saying we when he should have said the United States government. Uh, for the purposes of this conversation, we can call it the colonial government. Um, which, I mean, it is. Um, so, uh, okay, so Christianity torturing us with the cross the entire way to Kansas and later, some Potawatomi went to Oklahoma. Actually, I think it was the Potawatomi that won um, a significant portion of Oklahoma from the colonial government because that's what the fucking treaty said, and the U.S. reneged on the treaty. Um, I'm mistaken on whether that's the Potawatomi specifically or not, but... Um, Anyway, I recall being in a, I being Mako, obviously not me. <laughs> I recall being in a Inipi ceremony with American Indian movement in Menominee that was broken up by the police. Um, it makes sense now, the town being named after the chief who wouldn't sell out and wouldn't leave his ancestral homeland. This is where revival would come from. And he included a quote from Chief Menominee. Which, I mean, this again gives like, I know where he's talking about. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to put the quote in the comments. There we go. I have not sold my lands and will not sell them. I have not signed any treaty and will not sign one. 
I am not going to leave my lands and I, I don't want to hear anything more about it. I mean, that's a pretty solid quote. And uh, I mean, you know, like having the willpower really to stand up against the colonial government is impressive. Um, Natalie said FPL means testing is not a viable solution. Back to McCoe's text. The physical presence of indigenous people, although some, some of us have migrated back, are still causing ongoing effects. Although some of us have returned to our ancestral homelands, it remains, a, uh, it remains a vast lack of our presence east of the Mississippi. And I want to just interject one more time to point out the 2000 census in, a, in Iosco County, right? Which I believe it's the Ojibwa um, language, 0.66% indigenous population. This is what he's talking about. Look on the East Coast. How many indigenous people are on the East Coast? And really, he's right anywhere east of the Mississippi. Except for maybe parts of Tennessee. In addition to losing proximity to colonial government, making it harder to challenge the government um, when it attacks them, which is what they always wanted. And that's why Geronimo was shot at when he visited Washington, D.C. Actually, to be honest, I never knew that Geronimo visited Washington, D.C., let alone was shot at. Um, and before I even like get through this thing, I just want to like give a shout out to Mako for this history lesson. Um, the ongoing reflects, <laughs> reflects, the ongoing effects of removal make it hard to get numbers to mobilize at demonstrations in a situation where we are already only 1.3% of the U S population. I mean, at least that's 0.66% County, but this is their land. And that's how successful this genocidal campaign has been. 1.3%. Removal is still affecting our ability to reach the people, making it hard to get control over our destinies on our own land. And I just want to point out that self-determination, that land back has to be central to any revolutionary movement. Building the conditions where indigenous people can build back up their populations, can, you know, um, regain control of the use of the land. Uh, McCo went on to say, we are invisibilized even more than we normally are because of the ongoing effects of removal. For non-indigenous Organizers east of the Mississippi would political pressure not be different if you were in between two reservations in a city with an indigenous population of 3,000. Are you organizing on top of us against our will at our expense? Unless you're organizing under indigenous rule, then the answer is yes. 
Your organization is benefiting from our erasure and a power dynamic that is never in the favor of this continent's original inhabitants. The land issue is foremost, and I just said that, and I will stand by that. The land issue is foremost, and I want to reiterate what I said, that any revolution movement that wants to you know, seize control of this continent, um, that land issue needs to be first. That land issue needs to be at the top of the fucking list. Um, I'm going to throw another quote from Mako in here, but there can be no justice on stolen land. Um, once we reclaim our authority and organize for power, we will get respect and not until then. Um, I, I, I don't want to get the author of the quote wrong, but I believe it was Kwame Toure said that power respects power. And that's what he's getting at here. This requires that it, is, that it is mandatory for indigenous peoples to participate in their own anti-colonial liberation struggles. Non-natives should unite under indigenous rule, um, giving them authenticity as anti-colonial revolutionaries or turn their attention to the continents of their origin. And uh, this, this goes back to the, I think it was uh, Marcus Garvey quote, African for, or Africa for the Africans. Um, anyway, there have been many forced mar marches and the empire still chases us around like bison. Some of us have barely known rest, homeless on our own lands. We must overturn capitalism by turning to its only alternative, and that is communism. Pan-indigenous government, Allahi spirit runners. And um, you've probably quote before, if you've seen any of our episodes, if you've heard us talking about our episodes with Miko, um, indigenous rule will unite the races on Turtle Island. Um, and now I'm going to catch up on the comments. Nathan said genocide is so fugly and that's, putting it nicely. It is a dark, bloody history that this nation has, and we need to come to terms with it before we can move forward. Um, Nathan said, true. Look for the Seminoles in Florida. Actually, speaking of that, I know one of Nico's upcoming blogs is going to be about the Seminole uprising. Um, I would assume that that blog will be released the week of Christmas because December 25th was the date of the uprising. Um, Natalie gave clapping hands and the preach hands to Miko. Um, John said they were murdering anyone that they could not assimilate into the wage slave capitalist colonial apparatus of the new Eurocentric oligarchy. And they still do it overseas. And you're, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, that's why he's got so much friction with tribal governments because they're nothing more than petty bourgeois aspiring um, capitalists. You know, they're not ruling the tribe what's the word i'm looking for uh in a traditional way they're ruling it in the way that the capitalists say they can 
Um, Nathan replying to John said, yes, they just do it through proxy now where they pay right wing inspired mercenaries. And yeah, that happens over or overseas, just like John said. That's still happening. That's still happening in South America. That happened in Cuba in some of our audience members' lifetimes. These indigenous lifestyles... Uh, oh, wait, I skipped one. John said, think about the cultural diversity that was destroyed. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I was saying any revolutionary organization needs to give indigenous people the space to rebuild, rediscover their culture, um, you know, build up their numbers and take care of their land. And just to reiterate, the land issue, land back has to be on the agenda. Um, John went on to say, these indigenous lifestyles are what we need now with climate change because they were our renewable lifestyles. And yeah. Precisely. Fucking precisely. And that is exactly what Mako is talking about with everybody needs to get on the same fucking page with indigenous life because it's the only fucking thing that's going to heal our environment. Plain and simple. All of these fucking environmental protection agency type things, those need to be put in the hands of the tribes, fucking buildings, equipment, and all for them to take over handling how all of this is done. This is part of what we're talking about with land back of the rightful stewards having that governance power over their fucking land. This is Turtle Island. The United States of America is nothing but a fucking corporate entity that has done nothing but exploit the fuck out of Turtle Island from the beginning. By the way, hashtag rightful stewards is a hashtag that Mako uses on all social media. If you want to find more of his material, search that. You'll find memes. You'll find recruitment posters. You'll find quotes. You'll find a bunch of stuff. Um, but most importantly is blogs. Um, and that's, that's why we gave Mako the Wednesday slot, his, um, his, um, his show will be Wednesday night. His blog comes out the day before. So that way everybody can read it and then he can give it a hell of a lot more context because it's hard to convey big ideas like, um, you know, how almost 200 years later, how this, how this colonial law is still affecting indigenous populations. That's hard to sum up in a blog post. Um, I actually intended to try to get Mako on for this chunk of the stream, especially to talk, uh, to give us more. I can, I'm just a white guy. I could, I, I mean, I can give it a little context, because I've been getting education from Mako for a while now, but I can't give it anywhere near the context he can. Um, yeah, anyway, hashtag rightful stewards, hashtag red power. Fucking A. Um, and in case you want to go back and read it again. I am also putting the link to the blog itself in the comments. 
Um, Nathan said, I agree with her, even though I'm more of an income. I understand completely that the only viable outlook for both humans and the earth around them is eco-socialism. Ah, more of an ANCOM, he said. He corrected income as ANCOM. I was wondering what the hell that meant, to be honest. <laughs> I'm more of an income. What? Um, but yeah, um, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I also don't think that the, there's a lot of forms of socialism that simply don't go far enough to address the, the problem at this point. The problems at this point. Um, and that's why I'm personally more of a, uh, you know, Marxist Leninist, uh, maybe even Marxist Leninist Maoist. Um, I, for one, ascribe to science. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. Eco-socialism is the only viable outlook for life on earth. Well, for our life on earth, some life will survive. Some life will thrive, but it ain't going to be us. And we've already demolished the, uh, diversity of the ecosystems over the last 200 years being on this continent. And that's one more reason that I think that indigenous people need to have rule of their own land. Yep. They're the Besides, only ones that can fix their this. Their fucking inherent right. Well, right. right. Not a privilege. Right. I, you're right. You know? You're right. I'm just, I'm just trying to add layers. You know I, what I'm saying? I, I know. Sorry. Once again, I'm having a very angry day. <laughs> and, you know, that's not directed at you at all, Rob. That is me vehemently fucking agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I still have an asshole texting me and pissing me off. So sorry. Back and forth. <laughs> was there, was there anything else that we said we were going to talk about that we didn't, or does that about cover it? I don't know, because my brain's not firing on all cylinders right now. <laughs> That's fair. Mm. I'm, I'm the environment and collapse and most are still in denial reminded me of the last thing, because yeah. this is a big thing. The fucking tornadoes. How did I forget that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fucking. What the fucking shit was that? Was it six states it crossed? If I remember right. Like, holy fuck. Fuck. There was Touched 40 the entire time. There was 44 <laughs> tornadoes. Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> yes. Fuck Skyler right now. That's the name of the asshole mechanic. If you're in the Tulsa area, don't ever fucking hire Sky Vincent Skyler McCauley. Just don't. Just don't. Like his work is on point. I will give him that. My brakes are working beautifully beautifully but he's a fucking asshole it's his attitude that makes him not worth fucking dealing with and i've told him this so many fucking times that i feel like a broken goddamn record i've had to call that man a fucking asshole to his face on a daily basis Do you know if you can't tell by the fact that she's calling him an asshole on two facebook pages youtube twitch <laughs> 
Uh-huh. It's a fucking asshole. Podcast platform. Sexist. He's sexist. He's narcissistic. Oh, he's worse than that, Nathan. It, Jeff Bezos is probably a fucking saint compared to this motherfucker when it comes to attitude. Who fucking knows? I don't know. This is literally the worst attitude I've ever had to fucking deal with when it comes to like anybody I've hired for any work, let alone like I've never had anybody treat me like this when it comes to going to mechanics. He's a fucking asshole. He has threatened to drop my fucking RV off of the jacks because he was trying to demand payment before the job was fucking finished. And I'm like, no, mechanics get paid when the work's fucking done. Finish the fucking work. Um, and also threatened to drop my fucking RV off the jacks because he was trying to coerce me into going to his fucking house and kept getting told no. And he threw a shit fit about it and uh, called the cops on himself because he's that fucking together. Just don't do it to yourself. Don't do that to yourself. If you're in this area, don't fucking hire him. His work might be good, but his mouth is not worth it. And how long he drags shit out because he likes to show up and only put in two to three hours of work a fucking day. This is literally a two-day job and he dragged it out for two weeks. Two fucking weeks to change brake lines. Because he fucking says he'll be here at 8 or 9 in the morning and fucking shows up at 2 in the afternoon and fucking leaves by 5. <laughs> Multiple storms um, going on right now. There's a Trisha shit storm fucking brewing over here and about to touch to hunt up the fucking ground and blast right the fuck over to this man's house because he was dumb enough to give me his address. But... Uh, I'd have to go there with fucking police escort or something. And I don't like pigs. I don't trust this man. He's predatory. Anyway, but yes, we're also discussing tornadoes that fucking barrel through six states. And when it comes to personality, that is how I would fucking describe Skyler is he is six states worth of fucking tornado. Emily said, just trying to save your sanity, Trisha. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> Hmm. Um, it's so not an easy fucking the, the thing is that this one tornado touched four states, but the entire system went over six states and spawned 44 known tornadoes. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we can't just make it sound like it's one tornado because it was 44. But this one but there was, that there traveled was over 250 miles. Yes. Over Touching ground four the states. entire fucking time. Yeah. At, at its biggest, it was 1.3 miles wide. So, I mean, the numbers aren't in in terms of the damage and shit, but I'd be willing to bet that this is more than likely the most destructive uh, tornado that's ever touched the United States, at least since, you know, we started keeping track and it's so late. It's December. Um, but I do have a video if you guys exactly Nathan, but climate change doesn't exist. Well, well I want to show you weather 
weather and climate. Weather is not climate and climate is not weather. However, it is undeniable that climate change definitely has had an effect on these storms when they're happening, how big they are, how far they go, how destructive they are. That And this is an example of that. Big. Yes. An F5 tornado, which hasn't been officially declared, but be based on the gate to gate winds of fucking destruction it left in its path. This was certainly an F5 tornado. I'm not trying to... This is only the third, I think, maybe fourth, but the third, I think, F5 tornado in U.S. history. And it was on the ground for over 250 miles. I mean, I can't overstate that, um, but uh, there's a video um, which originally was on Twitter. Um, I sent it to the group chat the, the morning after the storms. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, my God. What the yeah. fuck? Why did it That's just open 32nd a different... Street between Fifth Ave and Broadway. I, I don't know. But th that that sound is so haunting. You can never unhear that. Right, and these speakers are not doing it justice right now. It's like the biggest fucking train in existence calling ass at you. Oh, hey, this is more than one video. I saw that motherfucker in the distance, I'd be like, oh man, Oh, I can hear it. Oh my god. That's what makes tornadoes so cheap. You can't fucking see it until it's on you, unless the lightning hits behind it like that. And I mean, if you're noticing up in the up in the screen, like it's showing, you know, different towns for each one of these videos. This is the same tornado. It's kind of eerie because it's getting windy over here, and I don't know if y'all can see, but the boats are rocking <laughs> while watching this. Large tornado, large tornado. Really? Lots of debris in the air. It's about to cross I-55. This is I-55. Large tornado about to cross I-55. Large tornado. Um, so I'm going to catch up on these comments. Um, to be honest, I've fallen a little bit behind in keeping up with this story. Um, to be fair, I've mostly been involved in, you know, trying to keep track of the recovery efforts. There are some Facebook groups and honestly, like there's so many people from so many different places that are helping out in so many ways. And it's so 
I just wish that it didn't take an event with dozens, dozens of deaths um, to encourage people to work together like this. Imagine if that was the norm. I'm just saying. Rev is barking at the neighbor dog. That's through, that's through a brick wall, by the way. When Rev barks, it shakes the house. <laughs> <laughs> Him such a big boy. He is a big boy. Um, and John is saying, they are saying they can't connect these to climate change. And isn't that laughable? Really? I mean, we're talking about, without a doubt, without a doubt, the strongest recorded storm in American history. Yeah. Um, and even um, the article that I had pulled up the other day, um, that was specifically stating that, yes, these are definitely being impacted by climate change, without a doubt. So um, the fact that uh, anybody's out there trying to say it, it can't, you know, that's that's such bad disinformation for them to try to claim that, you know. That's reductionism, point blank. Right. Um, Emily said tornadoes are 10 out of 10, my biggest fear. And I mean, I agree with that to an extent, to be honest. Um, right. But like, on the other hand, I love storm. Dumbass fortune until it was like, okay, I feel the wind from this motherfucker. Now I'm going to go hide. Because I'm a dumbass like that. but <laughs> Dude, I was raised like that. Of If there was a tornado blowing through town, we were sitting out front watching it. We didn't go to the fucking basement till it was absolutely necessary either. It's like that Michigan attitude of hold my beer and watch this. I mean, I used to make jokes so much about how like, you know, I'd be that guy with a beer in one hand, American flag in the other, no shirt, standing outside in a tornado. That was obviously before I completely lost faith. <laughs> that was before I knew history. How about that? That's a good way to sum it. Yeah, up. fair. Fair. Um, but no, I mean, seriously, that's that Michigander fucking attitude, right? Like, I ain't going to get taken out by no storm. <laughs> Emily right. said my mom. Actually, we've uh, we've talked about that before because her mom's the same way. And I don't know if it's a Michigan thing. We obviously not. Wade's in Texas, and he said we tend to do as Trisha said, and exactly that's the thing. I mean, I don't know what it is. I really don't. I know it's a bad idea, but there's something fucking beautiful about the destructive force of a storm. And maybe that I'm sounds sorry. dark. I got to interrupt you. I'm sorry if it gets loud. I just got a warning. My battery on my laptop's down to six percent. I got to turn the generator on to juice this bitch back up. So sorry, it's gonna be noisy for a minute. Fair enough. Um, Nathan said, if something is going over 250 miles an hour, which by the way, um, I don't know if it's been officially confirmed, the gate to gate wind speeds. And the way that works is like, you know, one side of the tornado has 50 mile an hour winds. The other side has 50 mile an hour winds, the other direction. That would be a gate speed of a hundred miles an hour. Um, there was gate speeds, of 299 miles an hour in, I forget what part of Kentucky, and sustained gate-to-gate -gate 
speeds of 283 in I forget what state it was. But the point is, is it's very clearly over 250 miles an hour gate to gate wind speeds. Um, and the only reason they declare an F5 is because an F6 doesn't exist. Um, Natalie said, by the way, Trisha, uh, let me know if you want me to unmute you. There was a little bit of feedback, so I muted you. There, you can mute yourself if it is a problem. I unmuted you. <laughs> um, okay. Natalie said, we had warnings here and terrible winds. And weird thing is my Wi-Fi was working better than it normally does somehow. But um, I'm glad that warnings aside and heavy winds aside, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad that everybody that's tuning in is okay. And if you have family in Kentucky, um, you know, try to check in with them. It's easier said than done right now. And there's still over a hundred, there's still over a hundred people missing. Um, anyway, John pointed out that there is not yet an F6 tornado category, but it's possible. And uh, Natalie pointed out that mutual aid is there way before any government assistance like FEMA. The Red Cross was actually really prompt, and it's probably because it was in the middle of the country. Um, but that being said, yeah, the people in the community were out that night. Like, hey, you alive over there? I mean, what else do you do? I mean, if it was me, as soon as the fucking thing passed, I would have been outside trying to fucking help people because that's what human nature does. Um, I just got a pop-up. Rob, did we lose you? Sorry, folks. I think we lost Rob. Shit. Okay. Bear with us a moment. He might be having connection issues. Oh my God. Now, thankfully he's in Arizona and I don't think they get those there. <laughs> right. He blooped into the ether. <laughs> Usually it's me doing that having shitty signal, but I guess he's got to take a turn every now and then too. I feel you, Nathan. Same. Same. Over here fucking juggling between this and, you know, asshole still fucking cackity cacking in my fucking inbox. And I'm like, uh, you don't get, I just keep repeating to him <laughs> my tools, the receipt, drop them off, leave. 
How fucking hard is that? It's really not that difficult. He wants to gaslight and fucking run his mouth. And... So my apologies for being back and forth here tonight. That's the dumb fuckery I'm dealing with. Yeah. Okay, Emily. Um, do you have a hotspot on your phone you can kick the uh, laptop onto? So he can read you. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Missing I was I bitching before about Skylar's guest. What the hell happened? I don't know. Um, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to pop it open on my phone to continue catching up on comments. But um, I'm glad that we're still live. <laughs> yeah. Dude, my internet just straight up shit out, and I don't know why. I rebooted the router, and now we're fine. But what the fuck was that? <laughs> right. I haven't had. I haven't had an issue like that. I have T-Mobile 5G home internet. And I really like it 90% of the time, but that just pissed me off. <laughs> right? Like, how dare you cut out midstream? <laughs> I mean, that being said, I've had it for about six months, and that hasn't happened until now. So it did happen quite often with the cable internet that I had before it. <sighs> anyway. Um, Don't mind me. I have a bit of a migraine growing. Its name is Skylar. Natalie said, no problem. Zen, life happens. Thank you, love. <laughs> Emily appreciate- said, maybe Rev's barking scared it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I fucking love you, Emily. Oh, my God. It's good. Oh, my God. Um. Anyway, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, where are we at in the comments? Oh yeah, Maya said some scientists are saying Tornado Alley is shifting east due to climate change. Um, I've heard that actually, and I mean I think that we're seeing it. Tornado Alley used to be like what fucking Oklahoma, Kansas. Now it's Tennessee, Kentucky. That's right. A pretty significant shift. Um, Wade said I grew up with them we tend to do as Trisha said I think I already read that one Emily said my mom loved to sit outside and watch Storms of All Strength she pointed out but I watched Twister too young so that's a giant note for me aww I mean I feel that what was that (laughs) that was a good movie too wasn't it yeah yeah I can see how that would scare you watching it too young, though. But yeah, I'm, I'm it, is, it is a pretty good movie. From the porch, like my family was totally comfortable with that. They're like, "Fuck it, let's go outside. It's a tornado coming. Keep an eye on it. That way, we know when we need to head for the basement." <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which, I mean, that being said, general rule of thumb here: if you're looking at a tornado and it doesn't look like it's moving to the left or to the right. That means it's coming at you, and that means get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so I already pointed this out, but over 100 people are still unaccounted for in Kentucky after the deadly tornadoes, including employees of Amazon, right? And um, they have switched their episode, their 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 focus from uh, search and rescue to recovery. Um, on top of that, what was it? Two days. Less than two days after the storm, uh, the workers at the facility across the street were ordered to report back to work. Oh, and there's still more comments that I uh, didn't notice. Um, Natalie said, I used to love sitting outside with storms, too. Um Emily said, my dad was a scaredy cat and would uh, watch the clouds and have an escape route to the basement planned. <laughs> Love that, man. Um, Nathan said, 100 people potentially under all that steel and merchandise. Uh, those aren't all from the candle factory or from Amazon. But I pointed out Amazon to point out that there were people at the Amazon facility that lost their lives. Um there were people at the candle facility that lost their lives and the Amazon employees that worked at the across the street facility. Right. So they knew the people that worked across the street, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's not a very big town. And I mean, if two of the three fucking big places to work there are Amazon, obviously you're going to know each other. So point being is it was less than two days later. Amazon told them to go back. On top of that, and Amazon's no phone policy probably led to a handful of people not being able to say goodbye to their loved ones. Um, and both Amazon and the candle factory are being accused of uh, threatening to fire people that didn't show up because of the tornado warning. Um, and both of those things are disgusting. And the bosses need to be held accountable. You told these people that they had to come into work knowing that there were on the ground coming, knowing that there had already been several tornadoes that spun off of the storm system. I mean, the National Weather Service apparently had been warning about these storms for over a day. And Amazon said, no, you got to come to work. Fuck that. <coughs> Every one of them should refuse. That's just, that's not okay to be demanded to come into work during a fucking serious weather emergency like that. What the fuck, Jeff? So actually, I take back what I said earlier. Apparently, you know, he's, <laughs> I don't think there is much hope for him actually being a nice person. Um, yeah. But uh, that that's pretty fucking horrible. And not just him, but whoever is management of that shop that made that fucking demand, fuck you, you're a piece of shit. Nathan said this is literally a situation of because capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well fucking said. 
Um, and you're right, Natalie. Exactly. But when you need the money, I mean, I, I can imagine how these people felt. Uh, you know, like, oh, well, I got to pay my rent. I, I can't afford to lose my job. They could probably afford to lose one day, but they can't afford to get fired. Can you afford to get fired? Can you still pay your rent? I can't. Um, so, yes, another. had the day off is thankful for it. <laughs> um, but that's another example of the exploitation of the capitalist system. Right. Profits over people. People are literally fucking dead because Amazon didn't want to shut the fucking shop down for the day. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. And I mean, shoddy construction to the buildings on top of that. Oh, it was a brick wall. Okay. Yeah, it was a brick wall. But what was the framework like? Oh, practically non-existent to save money. Oh, gee, I wonder. Right. Not just Jeff Bezos, but the management under him (coughs) needs to be held accountable. Amazon's no phone policy needs to be thrown out the window fucking today. Yeah. Yeah. Natalie said uh, too many live check to check literally. And the reason I chuckled when I said that is because I get to make this joke. I used to live paycheck to paycheck, but now through perseverance and hard work, I now live direct deposit to direct deposit. Trisha looks like she wants to headbutt a butter knife. I really do. I really do. You know me so well. (laughs) My head hurts so fucking bad right now. I just rubbed this minty muscle rub shit on there to try to calm it down. <sighs> That's okay. We're, we're relatively almost done anyway. This is our last topic. Um, yeah. Nathan said, even if you say, oh, it's just a freak storm, it wasn't the fault of capitalism, you can still blame it on capitalism. Because without the oil industry capitalizing on everything, we wouldn't have these freak storms of this magnitude. Exactly. And it's not just the oil industry, but they are a very good example. But the biggest contributor to greenhouse emissions is actually the United States military. So when we talk about defunding the military, that's fucking why you're killing the planet. Anyway, um, so NBC News reports that the death toll today... Uh, stood at 74 as search and rescue efforts continued as did the clearing of massive amounts of debris, including dead livestock. Actually, there's one thing that I want to talk about that hasn't been touched on by mainstream news, and I found it out through Facebook groups. The candle factory was hit by the tornado and collapsed, right? Shortly after the storm moved through, there was a trucker that had a brush guard on his truck, and he fucking cleared a path to the candle factory, um, destroying his truck in the process. And I don't know if insurance is going to cover that because, well, A, a tornado is an act of God, and B, it wasn't even the tornado that did it. He willingly destroyed his truck to fucking get emergency vehicles to the candle factory where people were trapped under rubble. And I'm willing to bet that his actions saved lives. He put his only to make money 
over his own well-being to save others. And that's the exact kind of solidarity that we need to see in situations like this. Um, John said climate change is the result of capitalism. Maya said OSHA is investigating the building collapse. I haven't heard that yet, but I'm glad to hear that. Um, and Nathan said, yeah, that trucker's probably going to eat that one. Uh, but John said that comprehensive insurance would cover it. Um, but that being said, I mean, regardless of whether or not insurance is covering that, I just want to say this man put his livelihood on the line and threw it out the fucking window in an instant to save lives. And that's real solidarity. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Anyway, back to what I was uh, reading from NBC News. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Do they have to make this about patriotism? Really? Flags in Kentucky were lowered to half staff at sunrise on Tuesday to honor the dozens of people who were killed when tornadoes ripped through several states. Why aren't we weatherproofing our infrastructure? Instead, we're putting our flags at half-mast like that means anything. More than 100 people were unaccounted for in Kentucky, and 74 were confirmed dead, according to Governor Andy Bashir, uh, in an afternoon update today, before he surveyed storm damage in Mullenberg County. Is 12 of the people who were killed were children. Um, the age range has gotten even hard. Some not even getting an opportunity to experience this life. Uh, the youngest victim was two months old and the oldest was 98. Months old? No, years. 98 years. It doesn't say that. <laughs> poor, poor, poor editing, but that's what it implies, right? The youngest vict uh, right. victim was two right. months it's old, like, and wait, the oldest wait, was ninety-eight. Did I hear that right? Right. <laughs> like, units matter. Yeah, units matter. Um, that's why they gave you story problems in math class. Units matter. Right. Um, he said eight of the dead in the county remained unidentified. Adding, I still expect that we will find more bodies. There is just so much destruction. Um, so, uh, how do I make this full screen? I'm going to show a, a clip of drone footage published by The Guardian. Um it's just some aerial footage. I, I'm not quite sure where in Kentucky it is. Um, it's probably Mayfield or Bowling Green. Both of those communities were basically leveled, as you clearly fucking see. I've never seen anything like that. And I mean, we're talking for 250 miles. Right. I've never seen that level of oh God. destruction. It looks like And video doesn't even do it justice. Doesn't it? Just holy fuck. And, and I mean, I, I just can't reiterate enough that I've never you... seen this level of destruction with any kind of storm. 
Um, like how, how do you even manage to search all of that and find everyone in time? Holy fuck. Um, back to what I was just talking about the, the worker aspect of this. This is also from NBC news. Just read that headline. Just let it sink in. At least they and I'm actually going to just play this video if that's okay with you. And Go I mean, that's, it. that's the last that I have on uh, the topic anyway. Um, oh, I might want to unmute it, huh? NBC News about a candle factory in Mayfield that had more than 100 people in it. You heard from one of those survivors, one of those factory workers earlier in the show. Well, now NBC News is learning that employees, some of them, say supervisors threatened to fire them if they left their shifts early because of the tornado warnings. Now, the company, we should note, is totally denying those allegations. They say it is absolutely untrue that the employees would not be able to leave. Broke that story for NBCNews.com. Now, Deanna, I understand you're popped back to your hotel room. You're going to get back out in the field later on tonight. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, about how employees walked you through what happened on Friday as the storm was coming in. What did they tell you? How did they try to stay safe? Sure. So I just broke a national exclusive um, less than an hour ago. Uh, this story stems out of me going up to one of the shelters that was housing a lot of the people who had lost all their worldly possessions, who didn't have any power and electricity. No, the city doesn't have any power and electricity. And I talked to a guy there while I was interviewing him. He told me that he was an employee of the of the candy factory and that while he was there, you know, before the tornado came, a lot of people there had wished that they would have been able to leave and go home to take shelter there with their loved ones or somewhere else that was safe, but they weren't allowed to because if they did, they risked losing their jobs. So I followed up. And I've spoken to five people who all give me the same story. And the story is, is what? That when those sirens hit, they tried to leave and they were told you might be fired if you do? That's what they're sort of saying, these employees? Correct. Initially, the company wanted, uh, as the first sirens went off, the first sirens went off, I'm going to say around between 5, 30, 6 o'clock, and they wanted everybody to, like, maybe take shelter in the bathrooms and the hallways. But then there was a three-hour window between then and when the second siren had came. And that's when a lot of the... Um, a lot of the employees there had asked to go home. So we're talking to 15 employees. That's on the low end, possibly to 40, but I'll just call it 15 for now. But who had asked, listen, it's getting dangerous outside. We're worried for our lives. Can we go home? And they said, well, yes, but if you do, you know, don't bother coming back. Wow. Now, I have to say, and we said it right at the top, Regina, companies saying, uh-uh. The company's saying this did not happen. Of course the company's good. That didn't happen. Right. Interested in covering their own ass. And they aren't lying. They didn't say, no, you can't go home. They said, if you do, don't come back. What the fuck are they coming back to? Right. The building's fucking demolished. Um, Nathan said, I sincerely hope everyone at Amazon strikes. And I mean, I know that at least in these uh, more or less locally based groups, there has been discussion of that from the, the workers at the other plant and the, the ones at the plant that is no longer standing, you know, like striking in solidarity. I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it does. That being said, this incident, the Amazon workers were told that they would get fired if they called in. The candle factory told them that they would get fired if they left after the tornado sirens. Um so, I mean, it's, it's slightly different, but it's too, it, it's the same fucking thing. 
And it's the result right. of capitalism. In short, if you it's don't the risk result your life, of capitalism. Yeah. If you don't risk your life for our profit margin, you're fired either way. Right. Fuck that. Exactly. Fuck you, Amazon. And this fucking candle factory. Yes. Anyway, back to the uh, tail end of this video. Happen, right? Correct. So I, I spoke to the company spokesman earlier today, and he said that ever since COVID started, that they have a policy where you actually are allowed to leave at, at any point during your work shift. You can leave and decide to come back the next day so that five minutes okay if you want to stay there for two hours okay if you want to stay there for the whole shift okay so they're denying the allegations but the employees are i have never heard of a company with a policy like that so i'm skeptical right off the rip right but of course the company would say that again they're trying to cover their asses yep. the employees are sticking by the story and some of them i know are still in the hospital yeah, I mean, one of the women who I spoke to was literally 2 o'clock this morning, and she was talking to me from her hospital bed. Wow. She sustained a lot of um, burns. She was trapped under a concrete wall for six hours, and we started talking on the phone, and this is how much of an important issue this was to her, where she didn't even bother going to sleep because she was saying, listen, Dion, this is what, this is what, this is what the work conditions were like when we were inside the, candy fa inside the uh, candle factory. Dion Hampton, you said it. It's a national exclusive that you broke. Um, it, it is some important reporting and we're really glad to have you stand on top of that i do have one more video that i want to show um this one is from cnn which honestly is a source that as most of you know i'm not a big fan of uh but they have the resources to get people um Places, and that's ultimately what this comes down to. It's another video of the damage. We're seeing things that um, none of us have ever seen before. Um, I, I went to Hurricane This is Katrina an older video. This years is from ago, the 11th. And, and I've the, seen things the now. After. Um, the, the damage here is, is indescribable. It's uh, it's changed the landscape of the of the city that we, that we know uh, here in Mayfield. And, uh, you know, we haven't even seen the, the beginning of it, really, because the sun hasn't come up. Uh, we're looking at footage right now, sir, of what appears to be a semi-truck that's in pieces. Uh, there have been buildings that have been destroyed. Uh, what do you know about the state of things in Mayfield? Are people able to access uh, help if they need it? Is there a coordinated effort now to survey the damage, to try to rescue folks that may be trapped? Yeah, I mean, with this, this storm hit uh, just after 930, uh, yes, or last night, and you know, as soon as it came through, uh, people jumped into action. Uh, the command posts were set up uh, throughout the throughout the county, and there was a, a, a vast coordinated effort to get uh, a really just to get uh, to places where people needed us, and then to um, you know get them to the to the help they needed. So we've got we've got plenty of things set up. Uh, people are getting the help they need and the medical care they need. We've got shelters set up. So I think that we've. We've really gotten off on the right foot, and we just uh, have a long way to go. Walk us through uh, any warning that you got. W what was it like when you first learned that this event was happening, and, and what did you do, and, and what are the protocols in place for folks in that area? 
we've been getting warnings, you know, uh, all week that this, that today or last night was going to be a big event. And, uh, you know, we always listen to those and always hope that they're not what they could be. And, uh, you know, I was eating supper with my family last night. We were watching the storms roll through Arkansas and, uh, we watched them for several hours and then they finally, uh, you know, got to us. And so I hunkered down like anyone else. And it's, uh, it was about, nine, I think it was 9.37 was actually the time that it was supposed to come through. And, and once it came through, you know, I jumped in my car and, and went to work. And uh, a lot of us have done. Uh, very much appreciate uh, the stoicism and, and the work that you do. But I'm curious how it affects you. We're, walk, we're watching folks comb through what appears to be more than a dozen feet of rubble in height what goes through your mind when you're in that devastation well it's hard to know because most of us have never had to experience this type of devastation before um you know you get into a zone and you just go to work and you know our, our main priority is is uh life safety and uh to get people to the help they need as quickly as they can and you know if you let the uh what's around you get to you you know you're not going to be as effective so you know i i give all the people that work with us props because uh they just go to work and we we can't ask for more than that i don't even know what to say uh, Natalie asked, is it true that the factory only paid eight twenty five an hour on the floor? Yes, actually. There has been a fairly viral um, screenshot of an Indeed posting of the jobs on the floor at the factory. And yes, they were paid eight twenty five an hour. Kentucky That's is one of the states that uh, has a minimum wage that matches the federal minimum wage at seven twenty five an hour. That's how much I made over 20 years ago when I was still in high school. When at the time the minimum wage was like five something an hour. But even like for jobs working at the ice cream shop and shit, <laughs> um, the nursing home, like everywhere that I worked when I was in high school, I, I was making around that amount. This is 2021. I graduated in the year 2000. What the fuck are they doing only paying that? That wasn't a fucking living wage when I was making that when I was in high school. I know because it was hard to fucking survive when my friend and I got our first place. It took both of us to be able to pay for it, even with all bills included. Like, that wasn't a living wage then. This sure is fucking anywhere near a goddamn living wage now. Nathan said, yeah, no, I've managed call centers that claim this and anything over your allotted emergency time is considered an offense they can fire you over. So if, uh, uh, ooh, excuse me, if someone had, say, two hours of personal emergency time and they took longer than those hours, that's a write-up. And even if it wasn't over their allotted time, if they forgot to tell someone they were leaving, it would be a no-call, no-show. Um, and they were fired immediately. Uh, Nathan said, wow, that is disgusting. 825. Yes, that is the nature yeah. of the capitalist be 
beast. They want to make as much as they can and give as little as they can for it. They just want to be a dragon and sit on their pile of gold like Jeff Bezos. Right. Cold, cold-blooded bastards. And, and I want to give you another example for another point of reference from 21 fucking years ago. Because, like, when I... After I graduated from high school, I started working at Jenny Craig, which was a fucking fluff job sitting at a desk, and I was making twelve fifty. What the fuck are they doing paying eight twenty five? No. No. Fucking no. No. They're doing physical fucking labor in there and making less than I did sitting at a fucking desk 20-something years ago for a job that really doesn't require much help. Oh my god. At what the fuck? John said, so who has money to buy products? Because the previous comment was with inflation that wages a pay decrease. Exactly. So who has money to buy products? Nobody. We have the money to pay our bills if we're lucky. If we're lucky. Yeah, John just uh, said Nathan's- that in the- Paid 12. Yeah. So I'm talking about like, what what the fuck? How do they expect people to survive on such a pittance? Well, I mean, that's just like back home. These little small town shops that supply parts for the big three. It's the same fucking thing. Um, You know, they've been paying the people that have been there for decades, like 12 bucks an hour since the 80s or 90s. And then they hire new people in at 12 bucks an hour. Or less. I mean, actually, I started working in a factory there. I was making an hour. And that was in like, oh, 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. But yeah, and like Nathan pointed out, that's for actual manual labor in a warehouse. 8.25 an hour. Fuck no. Fuck no. Unacceptable. Um... That being said, though, I don't really have anything else to say about what we've talked about tonight. There's a lot to reflect on, especially pertaining to the way the workers in the tornado were treated. And that can never be allowed to happen again. Uh, Natalie said, true, the small town, small factories do not pay well. I know. And I mean, I know that that's not just a Michigan thing. Obviously, we're just talking about Kentucky, but I know that's not isolated to those places. It's just fucking sad. It's pathetic that these companies are still getting away with shit like that. You know, like, how exploitative can you get? When is enough enough? And that's the thing. Under capitalism, there's never enough. A system based on infinite growth has the same ideology as the cancer cell. Yep. Yep. Capitalism is a cancer. Straight the fuck up. Their MOs are the same. Yep. Um, anyway, thank all of you for... Sorry. I could go on a rant about that one. Yet again, angry day, angry day. Call me. Woosa. Um, 
Nathan said the fallout, no pun intended, of this event needs to be ground-shaking. If it isn't, I can't see how Molotovs don't start flying. Um, John said, if we don't give in, they go to China with the jobs. And I mean, honestly, I'm kind of sick of that narrative, to be honest. I mean, do they do it? Yeah. But if we don't give in, we can't pay our bills here anyway. So what the fuck is the difference? Right. Um, Natalie said it's either drive miles to make more or accept crap as pay here. I, I knew I had a neighbor in my hometown that drove an hour and a half to work every day to a place that's like, you know, 70 miles away, Saginaw more specifically, to have a job that paid enough. And that's right. just pathetic. My dad did it for years, too, driving from Flint to Detroit. Um, just because that's where he could make money. He couldn't, you know. Uh, it, it was a drastic fucking difference between what they were paying him on the line at the shop in Grand Blank versus what he started making when he went into skilled trades. And at the time... There was no skilled trades office in Flint, so he drove to Detroit for that. And it was insane. Like, you know, putting in 10-hour days plus an hour and a half each way fucking driving in heavy-ass shit traffic. That's, yeah, it, it's the fucking American dream. Here's the reality of it. Well said. Um, it's just, it's just pathetic. Um, John said, great show, good content, revolution is coming. Um, I encourage you all to come back at the same, well, I, can't, I almost said the same time. Don't come back at the same time. You'll be really late. <laughs> but come back at the usual time tomorrow um, for the episode about Mako's last vlog post. Uh, which is about the poisoning of eight wolves in Alahi. Um, and then keep your eye open for Wednesday. It might be every Wednesday. It might be every other Wednesday, but keep, keep your eyes open for Wednesdays um, for regular pieces from Mako. Um, Nathan pointed out that we, we just had this conversation yesterday in our group chat, actually, we were talking about how AM radio radicalized our parents on long drives just to survive. Yeah. Radicalized to the far right. That is Rush Limbaugh, Paul Harvey, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. We also talked about guerrilla radio. Do with that what you will. <laughs> right. um, I'm sorry. I'll shit up. <laughs> Please Love don't. You guys. <laughs> Good night. That's just, that's just a lot of work. <laughs> balloons at that point. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, man. We knew what you meant. <laughs> just never miss an opportunity for a shit joke. Man. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is weren't we talking about dick and fart jokes like 20 years ago? It wasn't 20 years ago. It was 10 years ago, but still. Yeah. You, it doesn't yeah. matter like how many 
good, solid, intelligent minds you gather in one place, at some point, it's going to devolve to dick and fart jokes. Yep. It is what it is. Yep. Yeah, never going to change. That inner 13-year-old is always going to be there like, ha, <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes we need that motherfucker. <sighs> right? They will never not be based. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. Um, we yeah. <laughs> we do try. I mean, honestly, I feel like today's show probably would have been about 20 minutes shorter and a little more focused uh, had we not been so angry and late and drastically unprepared going into this. But um, that being said, the topics that we talked about tonight are important to us. And we've been kind of talking about these things for days. Uh, um, yeah. And we do generally these streams. We talk about what we're going to talk about for two or three days. Um, right. You know, heavy discussion, um, tossing around ideas for which topics we're going to cover. You know, we go in depth, like this is a full-time job straight up when it comes it really to is. all of it, you know, Yes, agreed, John. We do need to break free of our isolation. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, anyway, I just want to thank all of you once again for joining us tonight. Um, if you like what we're doing, you can support us financially on patreon.com slash for we are many. Uh, we do have some early release stuff up for the patrons we are gonna hopefully continue to keep that rolling um we have our facebook page we have the for we are many education and discussion group we're on twitter at for we are many too um for we are many podcast on youtube and at for we are many podcast on instagram and tiktok and of course the mothership for we are many.org Yes, indeed. And before we go, wanna... I'd like to give every one of you a shout out for being solid motherfuckers. Thank you. I love and appreciate that about each and every one of you that you, we're having a shit day over here and we're struggling to get our heads together to get this started. And even coming on an hour late, you guys are all still here. And I cannot thank you enough for that. Y'all are fucking diehards, and I love it. I appreciate it. You, you know, and it's funny. When a stream goes long and we start, like, losing viewers, we can always rely on the five of you that are left to be here. And I can't tell you how much that means to us, honestly. I mean, right. honestly, after, like, the week that we've had, like, I mean, I feel like if it wasn't for this, for this right here, we probably wouldn't even do it. But at the end of right. the day... You guys make it worth it. You guys have helped us keep our sanity the, the last couple weeks. And you're so appreciated. Thank you. I mean, you know, it's it's just one of those things that is mind-blowing when it comes to the ability to make genuine friendships with people through this work. And it's beautiful. And you guys are awesome. 
thank you so much for being here for us. I don't even just mean tonight. I mean everything you guys that, you know, because most of you are in our group chat too and, and you have listened to me, bitch. <laughs> All of us. Thank you. Thank you. Because y'all have helped me keep my sanity. It's been so fucking stressful. And I appreciate you being here for us so much. Y'all are family. Okay. I hope you know that we've pissed a circle around you and claimed you as our own. You can't get rid of us. You're stuck with us. Sorry. You just, you know. Um, Speaking of (laughs) working this shit out, this is, this is how me and Sterling work out aggression. And yes. I, Natalie said, uh, you guys have helped me help keep me going more than you will ever know. And again, that's what makes it worth it. We didn't have, you know, communities like this to rely on. And God damn it. That's what we need. Anyway, thank you guys one more time. Yes. Um, thank you. Love you. I will raise a glass to all of you. I'm about to go meet up with Much love to you all. So I'm actually going to rewind this a little bit because I wanted to crank it for the, for the heavy part, but you know, fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> We love you. Good night.